Hey, everybody. I'd like to welcome you back to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. Uh, this is a special edition with a conversation on all things finance and your money. Today's conversation features a friend of mine, a longtime journalist and financial expert who has a new book out with how to make the career change you always dreamed of, start your own business, and just get your financial house in order. It's jammed, packed with details. I think you'll really enjoy my interview with Jill Schlesinger. She has a new book out called The Great Money Reset. It just came out a couple days ago. Jill is the CBS News business analyst. She's my go-to for advice on everything from investing to home buying to retirement. I consider her a friend from our time together at CBS News. We had a lot of fun chatting in this podcast, as you will hear. We get into a lot in today's conversation. She was originally inspired to write this book based on all the emails and calls she was getting during COVID and after about doing the great reset, people looking to reset their careers, get that salary increase, make that lateral move, or start the dream company that they had been thinking about for years. We talk about how to do that in this edition, the questions you need to ask yourself. Jill uh, goes through a whole bunch of tools, questions, and things you can do to make the big financial calls in your life deal with this very unpredictable economy. Some of them, by the way, go against conventional wisdom. She explains what she has learned over these years. I think you're really going to enjoy her no-nonsense style and this conversation. It's based, again, on her book, The Great Money Reset, which I've linked to in the show notes. Before we get started with the conversation, a reminder to subscribe or follow this podcast on the app you're listening to us on right now. It'll ensure you don't miss a single episode. It also helps to support the podcast. And if you could also leave us a review, I would be so grateful for that. I appreciate everyone's support. Let's get started here. All right. I am so glad to be welcoming my good friend. I refer to her sometimes as my aunt, my big sister, my former colleague, Jill. What do you, Jill, do you have a preference? I am so psyched. I could totally be your like cooler, older lesbian aunt or sister. Either one. <laughs> Whatever you want. I'll I, take either one. I grew up, I was the oldest of two brothers. I never had a sister. So, you know, sure. Let's yeah. do it. When did you move to New York from DC? 2009. So I think that like we basically were both in the building at the same time at CBS. Okay, do my intro, but that's what I was just trying yeah, to figure no, out how long I've known you're, you. You're getting a little ahead of ourselves here. I know. So, so Jill Schlesinger, a long time. Hold on college. a second. You got to do it the right way. Jill Schlesinger. You know how the anchors really need to be spoon-fed most? Sh- Schlesinger. Sla, sla, sla. Sle- Pretend there's no C. Schlesinger. 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 Jill I learn new things every day. And my Thank apologies, because I should have gotten that right after all this time. But hey, <laughs> as someone whose name is Moshe Wanunu, <laughs> I feel I it. Think that's why you wanted to know that. <laughs> it's important. At least you have more consonants in your name. I hmm. tell people to wing it with all the vowels. Jill has a new book out called The Great Money Reset. Uh, and if this, the rest of this title doesn't hook you, it should change your work, change your wealth, change your life. Jill is uh, beginning her book tour right now. Yeah. Uh, Jill, how's it going? It's great. It's amazing. Um, And I'm so delighted to be with you because I just, you know, I adore you, Moshe. So uh, to just be able to talk biz, which is also fun, is great. And the book is a real passion project of mine. You know that um, you've known me now for quite some time since I guess 2009-10. Um, remember early days and you're like, when you were working at the stream and you're like, why don't you do like your radio show, your podcast, and we'll throw a camera up there mm-hmm. and we'll just do this. And I'm like, that sounds like I have to wear makeup. I don't like that. <laughs> 
<laughs> that was my response. And uh, anyway, so I've been doing this podcast and radio show for basically a dozen years or so. And, um, and people would just ask me personal finance questions. So my background is I'm a commodities trader turned certified financial planner, investment advisor, turned, um, what do you call me? A media ma maven of some sort, you know, a money maven of some sort. I talk on TV and radio and podcasts about money and personal finance, the economy and all that stuff. And what was really cool about the shows, the radio show and the podcast, uh, were the interactions I had with real people. And during the pandemic, we just kept getting a flood of inquiries just about, Hey, can you take a look at like my real life? Cause I am so freaked out about where things stand. And it was almost like this collective experience of being a bit self-reflective amid a once in a century pandemic really did force a lot of us to yeah, take a good hard look at what was going on and whether or not we were, whether or not we were happy where we were. And, you know, it's just, I, I kind of boiled it down to, there was this group of questions, which kind of came down to this, is this really how I want to live? Mm -hmm. And so the conversations I had with these folks were really about, well, let me talk to you about your money and then you kind of handle how you're going to make your dream a reality. And, and that's really what the book um, was born of these conversations with people who were changing different aspects of their lives. Yeah, Jill, you have the Jill on Money podcast, the radio show, the column. You appear frequently on CBS. Uh, for those of you who aren't aware, Jill basically serves as the, as the kind of ad hoc financial advisor for the entire organization, for a <laughs> bunch of journalists who got into the business because they weren't good with numbers. Yeah. And then suddenly found themselves being adults, having to live yeah. lives, buy homes, uh, make big decisions. And Jill is just there. And you're like, Jill, what should I be doing about my taxes? What should I do about this house? What should I do about this? And so um, that is where we got to know each other, as long as, as well as commiserating about colleagues we loved, colleagues we less than loved. Correct. All of the above. Mm. So, so you got, you know, this book resonated with me because I made my own pivot during COVID. Um, I asked questions as to, how I want to live my life. I spent 15 years in traditional media. That's where we know each other. Um, and if it wasn't for COVID, honestly, I'd probably be back there, Jill. Mm. You know, I was taking a break and I was actually doing a job for Condé Nast Entertainment just as COVID hit. And then the world froze and blew things up. And I will give credit to my then girlfriend, now wife, Alex, who's just like, stop building things for other people and try to do something on your own. Mm -hmm. And Jill, I want to begin with how you began the book. You, because um, I thought this was really well put. Many of us fantasize about making proactive changes to our lives, whether it's re-examining a long-term relationship, telling a boss to take their job and shove it, finding a new place to live, or simply listening to a quiet internal voice that says, we must step back and figure out a new path. But relatively few of us turn those fantasies into reality. We get stuck in neutral, unable to break with our existing reality and take meaningful action. I want to begin with your story because you talk about it and you did your own reset. Um, take me back to when you made your big pivot, when you made, you know, your, let's call it reset, your great money reset, Jill. Where yeah. were you and, and how did you get to that next Place. So, um, I, I have had a lot of, of mini resets, but you know, I had sort of big career changes. Oh, and by the way, also came out as a lesbian. That's one of those other, that's not exactly a reset, but that was like a reset in life, but for real, but you know, uh, so I moved from, uh, being a trader and then I was an investment advisor 
and a money manager up in uh, New England. And I had some partners and we built this firm up um, over the course of 14 years. And it was like a kind of, listen, it's teeny tiny firm relative to like what many people are thinking of like big, powerful firms. But like we had some um, minor celebrity. Uh, one of the ways that we got business that uh, we, my, one of my partners and I hosted a radio show. And then you sort of get noticed and you're asked to do some television. And so, you know, through the late 90s and early 2000s, built up a presence we ended up selling the company and we're working out uh, a contract. And so the financial crisis comes in 2008. And for me, it was really, you know, again, it's just like one of these big things that happens, right? And, you know, there were two moments in my life where I felt so far away from my home, New York City. One was 9-11 and the other was the financial crisis. And I felt like those two things, like these big major events made me feel kind of lonely and pining for New York. So it, I think that really in my career as a financial planner, it was great in terms of like, it was fun. It was fun to grow a business. But you know what I found out? I really hated being a boss. I really did not like that. I didn't like owning a firm. I didn't like having employees. Um, I liked giving advice to real people. I liked, you know, very elegant solutions, like financial solutions to big problems. But um, I, it was hard for me in the, under the structure of you have to maintain this relationship with this client over long term. So when I looked at my life and, you know, the world's falling apart in 2008, I thought to myself, I have three big jobs in this company and I could have stayed at the company as long as I wanted to. So the big job, number one, was like sort of, you're the co-owner, so you have a management part. I hated that. The second part was I had clients and I was the chief investment officer for, you know, $500 million, which, you know, like it wasn't hard. Like I know how to do that. It wasn't like that was not the hard part, but relationships are always hard. And the third part of my job was the chief marketing officer of the firm that was doing all the media. I was writing a lot. I'm like, wait, you know, I like that. That I could really get into doing over a longer period of time. And so you know, coming out of 2008, I was looking around and trying to decide what to do. I literally was like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I really want to go back to New York. New England's great for like a period of time, but home is home, right? And uh, so I'm talking to my friend Maureen and she is in media her whole life. And she said to me, you need a pink notebook. I'm like, a pink notebook? I'm waiting until I give you the, I'm going to give you the visual of the pink notebook. And I, I said, What's in a pink notebook? She goes, you know, like a three ring binder we grew up with, you know, you've got sections and you've got tabs and in that binder, you're going to work out what your next move is. So in one tab, it's going to be like, you do all your financial stuff. Like you do that, Jill, you know how to do that. Put it all down there. But I want you to start thinking about what are the different aspects of media that you want to explore? Are there writers you want to talk to? Are there people in TV that you want to talk to? You do radio, you have this and like start building this up. And this will be the way that you can organize your thoughts and consider what your reset will mean. And why is that so important? I mean, it is a structure. I, I think that what we all crave and sometimes these dreams don't become realities that we don't have a structure for doing this. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to give you the structure to say, here's what your dream is, but I'm going to say, if you tell me what the dream is, let's try to figure out how to get you there. And that's essentially what I did. Um, and so since you know the players and I can name drop a little bit, it's just more amusing than anything else. You know, I was on, I was serving as a guest on a lot of different networks. And so 
I had done guest appearances on Fox News um, with Shep Smith for a while and with Neil Cavuto's show. And when they launched Fox Business News, um, then I was on like for hours at a time early on with like Liz Clayman and whoever was hosting. And so it was, it was great learning. It really was like, we're going to talk about like 17 different things, come on the air and talk. And, uh, and I did some stuff on CNN and then Guy Campanile, who's a great producer at CBS, CBS saw me on yeah. the air and he said, Hey, are you exclusive? I said, exclusive. I'm not getting paid. I'm just doing this to kind of promote my business. Oh, you know? Jill. I know. And I really was just like, I'm not, I wasn't doing it to get paid. I was doing it. So I was like, it's kind of cool. And it's great. The firm get this little firm gets some notoriety. So, um, so I started being used in a lot of Anthony Mason's pieces in 2007 and 2008 in the financial crisis. And so I went to Guy and I said, how, how do you think I could do this? Do you think I could like be somebody in this world? And he was really encouraging and he, we watched tape together and he showed me how to put a reel together and it was very generous. And so I developed this, this pink binder. I developed this idea and really what I've developed more than anything else, if like your big takeaway is I was able to say, what are the three different scenarios that I can give myself over the next six months to give myself a chance to succeed? And for me, having the best case, the worst case, and the mid middling case, those were really instructive. I don't know if you did this before you started. I think we had a conversation about this when I said to you, like, what? You don't need a full-time job. You need to assemble a portfolio of clients and business and income streams so you mm -hmm. can pay your bills. And I think that if you kind of go in with this idea, like three different scenarios, it's a lot easier to make these kinds of transitions. And, and maybe, by the way, you go through it and you say, I don't want to do it. Are those three scenarios different for everybody or are there some general ways? Because I know you spend time at the beginning of the book laying out uh, what, you know, if you're unhappy or you feel disrespected or you're just looking to do something you're passionate about, how you go about that, uh, beginning with, I guess you have your five steps. So, yep. so take us through that process, Jill, of, okay, I'm unhappy with what I'm doing um, or what I've chosen and I'm figuring out my next steps. What do I need to be doing? How do I fill out my notebook? Okay. So I call it the fab five because I come from network television and I have to have five bullet points maximum and also have a kitschy saying for it. That's, that's how much room we have on the lower third graphic uh, <laughs> and, and on all graphics. So basically you spend enough time in TV and you think in graphics. Exactly. Uh, it's yes. three or five. It's yes. three. And I'm really, I like three better. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the fab five is, okay. Like, doesn't it make sense that if you are actually contemplating any sort of change, you must look at where you are today. And this is like the part that freaks people out. It's why people call the podcast. They know that they have to do this, but they're like, please hold my hand, walk me through this. Yeah. So number one, what are your resources? What have you saved? How much money do you have? What are your assets? And what's your income? And you know, what's fascinating about income, this probably strikes you differently today than it would have three years ago, most before you were seriously with somebody else. But like you don't, you take for, we all take for granted these big benefit packages that we get through big companies. Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden, like you're married, you're having babies and you're like, mm, wait a minute, it costs a lot to replace that. Yeah. And I just want to make sure that people understand that, you know, you're going to make a big change. It's really important to account for some of that stuff. And so those, you're talking about insurance, you're talking about uh, retirement 
in retirement matches. Um, we're talking about having flexible spending accounts, but yeah. like, even though we all gripe about insurance and what we have to pay, mm-hmm. your employer is shouldering the burden oh, of yeah. most of your insurance costs. So when you go out into the, uh, when you go to your marketplace and you're like, Oh, I wonder what a silver plan costs. You can sometimes be a little bit like, wow, that gets some sticker shock there. All that being said, you don't have to do anything. I just want people to realize it. So you've got your assets, you got your income. The next step, what are your liabilities? What do you owe? What's your debt? Do you have a mortgage? Do you have credit cards? Do you have car loans? Do you have student loans? List them out. That's easy, right? The the next step that I think is incredibly important is to really take a look at what you're spending. And this makes people completely insane. They hate it. I'm sorry. It's hard. When you're looking at your spending, whether you make a million dollars a year or $10 a year, it forces you to confront all the choices you've made over your life. But I'm not asking you to make choices. I'm just asking you to document it. What's your nut? What do you do right now? And you and it doesn't mean you're not going to cut it out or change it, or maybe you would, but I just needed an accounting of it. Yeah, Jill, you say in the book, the not-so-hidden secret to achieving your dreams is spend less. Yeah, I know. It does help. But yeah. most, but you know what? That's also a hard thing. Yeah. You've got an established lifestyle. You're looking, you're, let's say you're 45 years old. You're coupled up. You got a couple kids. You're living a life. You say, you come home one day and you say to your partner, oh, honey, I'm miserable. I'm uh-huh. And you know what? You sort of, this kind of gets into this next, another part of the Fab Five, which is you really have to understand what was the obligation that you made? What is the What's the pinky swear? What's the promise that you have made to others that you need to honor? You know, there are a lot of people who want to do a, a, a reset and they'll say, you know, my spouse isn't on board with this. I'm like, ain't going to work. Mm-hmm. Just not. So you better get your spouse on board or you're getting divorced because that's the choice. You cannot possibly do both of these things. But what are your other obligations? You know, do you have aging parents? Did you tell your kids who are now 16 and 18 that you would help pay for college? And now you're like, nah, I don't really want to do that. Like, it's kind of hard to undo that obligation. And the last part of it, of the Fab Five, you know, so again, what you own, your resources, what your debt is, what you're spending, uh, your obligations and your housing. You know, look, a lot of people are in homes that they love with really low mortgage interest rates. There are other people who are the happy renters and they never want to buy again. And so there's something in there just taking stock of like, what's the housing deal? Do you want to move physically someplace? If you said, Hey, my parents are getting older. I need to move back to Chicago. Like that's important to me. Mm -hmm. That's going to be a whole different part of your life. And you've got to make the changes associated with that. So those five things are the real core components of like, just getting it right. Like you got to get real with yourself. So that is, uh, I'm unhappy or I'm looking to make some sort of change. You begin with what are my resources, my liabilities, my housing issues, my spending and my obligations to my kids, my family, et cetera. Exactly. Is there a, a magic number? I need to hit five out of five on that. <laughs> you know what? There's like not even like a magic number. It's just you have to go through it. You have to think yeah. about it. That's why I think most people don't make change because it requires quite a bit of work to do it responsibly. Yeah. So all you know, the whole book is really my pitch to people. Like you can totally do this, but like you got to roll your sleeves up and actually do it. There's so much talk on social media, on Instagram, where I live a lot these days, Jill, where people are like, you know, if you're not happy, you can start your own thing. And look Mm. at me, I'm making six figures. I'm making seven figures. Um, 
Is there, uh, you talk about, um, you know, we went to the five, but you talk about not, not making the full switch, something short of the full switch in mm-hmm. the book. Smaller is better, or maybe a lateral move to a place you're happier, or what you call bullying your boss. Take us through the short of, the, the short of, the sort of kind of half measures you could take if the full reset to a completely different career is not in the cards. I find that a lot of people actually don't want the full-blown, like, I'm blowing up my life. Like, I'm doing the Jill Mosh thing. Like, most people are actually not constitutionally set up to do that. Because it takes a lot of energy. And you, it's not just risk. It's just about, like, personality. People like comfort and security. Right. And so that's, to me, kind of an important aspect of this. But, you know, I think the half measures can be something like, hey, you know what? I'm 48 years old. I'm in a career. And let's just pretend, let's just pretend it's media. Okay. okay. So because we'll, we'll just do that. You know, I'm in media. It's not my dream job. And, you know, that's something that. Sounds like some of our colleagues. Exactly. But, yeah. you know, I'm in it. I make a good wage. So what is it in my life that I can do to set myself up to either make a smaller change or to give myself an off-ramp? And sometimes that off-ramp, I think like for people in their 40s and their 50s can be, you know what, I've got to develop some sort of side hustle or consulting flow that can really help pad the money down the line. Doesn't have to be today, but just a little something, beginning germ of a business. And I think especially if you're in your 50s, and you like, I got to really make it to 65 because that's where I'm going to get my Medicare. Mm-hmm. If you're 52 years old, 13 years is a long time. It is, right? And so if I'm saying to somebody like, gut it out, dude, you don't have enough money. What are you going to do to actually go beyond that? I keep coming back to some of the stories of the people. Like I, I interviewed this woman and her husband in the Pittsburgh area, and she was a nurse. And he was a physical therapist and she, she said she was just killing herself. And this is even before the pandemic. She was, I worked so many extra hours. Why? These guys, they were in their fifties and they were kind of looking ahead and they're like, well, we have to pay off the parent loans that we took out for our kids college. And we ran up a little bit of debt extra because of the cars. And, you know, now they were working so many extra hours that she said she couldn't see her way to making it to age 62 or even 65. She's like, I'm 56. It ain't happening. I'm just, I'm exhausted. So we, she tells me the story about how in the pandemic, she's in the operating room and they're taught, you know, by the way, this is what people talk about in the operating room when you're under, they're talking about the real estate market getting really hot in Pittsburgh. Okay. And, um, one of the folks in the, in the emergency, in the uh, operating room said, you know, it's crazy. Like, I just like, I have so much equity in my house. I, I don't, I mean, not that I'm going anywhere, but you know, it's kind of cool. She went home and she says to her husband, go, let's call this realtor friend, get her over here and let's see what the house is worth. And when they saw the number, they were blown away. And it was almost in a split second where they start charting it out. And they said, wait a minute, if we sold our house right now, we pay off all the parent loans, we pay the mortgage, we pay the parent loans, we pay the cars off, we put money in the bank, and we actually don't have to work all that overtime. We actually can work like normal human beings, like 40 to 50 hour work weeks where we're happy. Like she really liked her job. She just was exhausted. Mm. And, and then she said to me, what, what they did was they actually got a long-term Airbnb and she said, I can work till I'm 65, 70 because I'm so much happier. 
I'm so much, I feel so much less burdened. She goes, I thought I was burnt out of work. I was burnt out of this anvil of weight of debt on me. And I was burnt out because of the hours, but mm. actually I like my job. So that's like one of those things where you're saying, someone's saying to me, like, I just got to get out. Well, maybe there's a way to be middle ground. Maybe you're the executive and you know, you're fully defined by your business and you're what you do. Well, get over it, man. Like you're going to die in that place and nobody's going to care how many hours you worked. So you better figure out how to make yourself happy. And sometimes making yourself happy is looking at the money you have and being clear, you can make different decisions. It's funny as a elder millennial, Joe, I feel like I was, I was trained by Gen Xers and boomers. Uh, and you know, initially, yes. She's, Idiots. She's, she's congratulating herself. And, yeah. and so we're that generation. Then the Gen Zers come in. This is post-96 born. They start to come in the newsroom and in the workplace around 2016, um, 2018. And they have a completely different vantage point. I'm like, wait, who are these people for who want to balance their lives? And they're talking. And it's funny because initially people are so critical of them. And I'm like, well, actually, they might be onto something. Exactly right. I learned so much from our younger colleagues and you, you included, but you did come up in a different way, yeah. but I learned so much listening to these people because listen, I am in my fifties and I came up like on wall street, which is like, you just grind people to the ground and then whatever, if they survive fine and no one cares. But the reality is there's a better way to do this. And, you know, I am not saying that you can, um, I'm not a huge proponent of people like I don't, I, I just don't want to work as hard or I'm going to work just, you know, basically this idea of quiet quitting is yeah. so stupid. It's stupid. It's just like, you know, you can hack off and slack off and that's fine. And maybe your boss is- Well, that's what we used to, that's what we called it, slacking off. Now slacking they have off. A, now they call it quiet quitting. Right. And now yeah. what I can tell you is that like, go get a new job then and figure out what you want to do, but don't work for a bad person who takes you for granted. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the one nice thing is, as you get older, you do realize that the people who are around you are the most important people, like forgetting about everything else. Yes. The money is important. And yes, like management is important, but you have to like to show up to work every day. So what you, you mentioned side hustles, right? I have that job. So you talked about the scenario where it was just about you know, she, she had to kind of do her assessment of her house and she found money somewhere else. And, but the idea of creating a side hustle before you fully jump into something, oh, how, I, I love that. how do you approach the side hustle? How do you dabble in the side hustle? You have a family, you have a full-time job ostensibly. Mm -hmm. Um, how does one begin that? How do you set up that Etsy store? How do you start to pursue that passion to see if there's something there? So this is, um, uh, I credit hat tip to my friend, Chris Gillibo, who wrote the book called side hustle and he's fantastic. And he really was so helpful to me. He, when he first wrote that book, he came on the show and we became friends and he talked about how a lot of times side hustles begin as a way to gain some, uh, semblance of control that you feel sometimes like you're working in an organization and you just like, you know, someone else is dictating. And that it feels very off-putting, but a side hustle, a little extra thing on the side, and it can be your funny idea. It could be something you do really well that others want. Um, you know, like I know a guy who does tax prep. I know that's not fun for many people, but he's just like, he finds it easy. And he does like uh, some of his coworkers helped him out. I know a guy who was like used a side hustle of like building decks for people and they, and it's just like, it's easy money for him. It's creative. It's, it's like an outlet. And, you know, one of the things that I think is important about that is it, as you, you know, sort of a hobby to a side hustle is kind of an interesting step. Like, can I make money doing this? 
mm, let me try. And then you try doing it mm-hmm. and you see how it goes. And then you see, is there any scalability to this? Could I do more of this? For a lot of people, just having the side hustle is best. It's like, really, that's a great thing. You know, there, you could be somebody in media and you're like, you know what? I could write speeches for someone on the side. I could do comms. I could do this. I could do that. If you are, um, you know, like I have a nephew who is a software engineer and, you know, if he wanted to, not that he does, but if he wanted to, he could run around and be like a tech person for like my mom's friends. They'd pay him handsomely just to go like, could you set up my TV? Thank you. know, like, can you help oh, it's, me with my it's track? remarkable. My, my brother does home theater and computer repair and computer setup uh, in the Midwest. I was at Chicago. And I was like, what did you do today? He's like, I had somebody called me to set up their iPhone. Yeah, like, really? exactly. But you know what? What a beautiful service. And that probably yeah. started as a small thing and then it be, expands. And so you expand it. The real question is, how do you go from a side hustle to a business? And I think that that is really about starting to sort of slowly, really look at what would I lose if I stepped away? Could I make enough money? I tend to think that you, that for most people, you've got to have one big client or customer in the bag to really walk away. So for me, you know, I was hired um, early on as an employee of CBS. And then a few years later, I was like, I don't love being an employee. I take up a lot of space. (laughs) (laughs) These poor people. I mean, but I wanted to be able to do more stuff on the side. That's really what happened. And I knocked out a deal where my, the, my biggest stream of income was with CBS, but I stepped away from being an employee because I wanted to do other things. And as long as I knew I had that base, I could build everything up. Uh, uh, everything else up. So I could write and I could go and do, um, speaking engagements and I could kind of be, um, do some things in the financial planning industry that I would work with people. I could consult. So all those pieces came together, you know, some really dominate others, but you know, even that, it just allowed me to start a podcast because I said at the time CBS wasn't doing podcasts. And as you know, I was doing a radio show. We had to, I, we had to gradually drag them into the 21st century. Yes, right, exactly. Yes. Almost. We're almost there. Yeah. Um, you know, and I had an executive producer and I said to him, go get a real job and I can pay you this much money on the side to do my podcast. And that's kind of how we both rolled. And so it's cool because it does give you some element of control, but it also lets you test out just how you, number one, do you like it? And can you really make enough money doing it? I'm speaking here with my friend and former colleague, Jill Schlesinger. With her new book, The Great Money Reset, we'll have much more of her advice and wisdom right after this break. I've been using the Blinkist app for more than a year now as a way to get quick summaries of books that I want to read but I never quite get to or get quick refreshers of books I just haven't read in a while. It's essentially audio cliff notes. Blinkist gives you basically a read on a book in 15 minutes. I like to listen to them on my commutes or while working out. They offer more than 5,500 books and podcast summaries and a wide range of topics, politics, parenting, communication, leadership, investing. You know those books you see, you might see them at the airport, et cetera, and you're like, I should read that. That would make me a lot smarter. Blinkist provides curated collections and expert-led guides. It helps you grow a little bit every day. So right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for the Mo News audience. Go to Blinkist.com, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T.com slash Mo News to start a seven-day free trial and get 25% off your Blinkist premium membership. Again, that's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, like in a blink, 
Blinkist.com slash MoNews to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. And now for a limited time, you can even use Blinkist Connect to share your premium account and you will get two premium subscriptions for the price of one. So again, Blinkist.com slash MoNews to check it all out. All right, as we head into warmer weather across much of the US in the coming months, one way to stay cool and continue to get a good night's sleep is by checking out Bull and Branch Bedding and Sheets. They're a brand that we love here at MoNews. We only endorse products that we love. And we've been using Bowl and Branch for more than two years now in our home. The sheets have been great, soft, breathable fabric that works for both cold and warm weather. We noticed the quality immediately and have gotten a few different sets in our house. I know Jill has as well. They're made with 100% organic cotton, completely free from toxins. I know that is very important to a number of you. And it's not just sheets. They have blankets, duvets, pillows, a whole variety of products to ensure you get a good night's sleep. And right now, they have a great deal for the Mo News community. Go check them out. I promise you will not be disappointed. Again, they get softer with every wash. So the deal right now is 15% off your order when you use the promo code MoNews over at bullandbranch.com. That is bullandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code MoNews for 15% off. Exclusions do apply. See site for details. Okay, I'm back here with Jill Schlesinger. I will get it right at some point. All right, I, I have the second half much better than the first half, everybody. Um, Jill, I, as people make the pivot, they consider their reset. Uh, something that comes up is going back to school. It's beautiful. Getting a new degree. Yes. Um, and you have some rules of the road when it comes to making that decision. You know, a number of people will come to me, especially just given what we do. Should I go get that master's in journalism? Typically, my answer is no, everybody. You don't need that master's in journalism. Yeah. You can talk to me and Jill about it. But there are maybe scenarios where you should. So, Jill, what are the rules to the road when it comes to I'm going to go back and learn something new? So I think there's three real questions to ask yourself. I mean, not all education degrees, certificates are created equally. So number one is, what am I actually trying to do? What skill am I going to acquire? What credential am I going to get? This is really important because I give the example, you know, I have tons of nieces and nephews. And it's a great thing being with like a nice Italian girl with lots of siblings and lots of nieces and nephews. And, you know, one of them was uh, talking about graduate school for a long time. And, you know, like we had a whole bunch going to the, through the graduate, the graduate degree contemplation process at the same time. So one's a teacher and um, this was so fascinating. She was a New York city teacher. And when you're a New York city teacher, if you get a master's degree, you get an automatic bump in salary. Like it's a real bump. It's like 10 grand, which is meaningful when you're making 60 to go to 70, right? But they don't really care where you go. So they don't care whether you pay tens of thousands of dollars to get your master's degree, or in her case, she did something that was like a, through a lab school that was $5,000. She could do it part-time. She got her degree. She got her bump and she didn't spend 25 grand a year for two years. So that, or for a year. And that was like, Wow, I didn't even know that existed. On the other hand, you know, you can have somebody who is looking at a graduate degree and maybe say, well, maybe I should do one of these coding boot camps, which also much less expensive, a much lower outlay, and I'll get the skills and credentials I need. But you really have to decide, what am I trying to gain by getting this degree? And does it, do I need a private label 
type of uh, degree or certificate to get there. And I think that's important. I, I mean, I often hear that for the people who pursue MBAs, uh, you know, and then they might, you know, try to do the night MBA, the executive MBA versus the full-time MBA. And obviously it costs different and, and different time requirement, but does ultimately, I mean, I, I, where do you fall on that whole thing? Because, you know, to, to an extent, I've heard that the executive MBA is sort of a, a waste to a certain extent to people. If you're going to do it, like go in, you know. I think MBAs are tough. I think yeah. that, it, I think they're great if you really are using a, a the education to propel yourself forward in a different industry. I have a niece who's in the arts and arts administration, and she knew nothing about business. And you know what? Yeah, she actually was like, this is important information for me. She applied to a lot of programs. She happened to get into a, a really good program and she got a lot of money because they love to give money to people who are career switchers. Mm -hmm. So that's good. Um, we're, if you're going to go to a middle of the road MBA program, even an executive MBA, eh, you know, if you're saying I'm going to Wharton, I'm going to, Pen I'm going to Chicago, I'm going to Harvard, I'm going to Stanford. I get that label, that imprimatur on my resume. And that will allow me, that at least puts me in the pool to get like examined for these very high powered, crazy ass jobs where you have to work 120 hours a week. Yeah, sure. But even that, you know, I have a nephew who is in consulting and I think he was really torn. He had a great GMAT. He didn't want to let it go. And he was, it's only good for five years. And, you know, he was hard pressed because he said, I don't want to leave the labor force. Like my career is going great right now. Mm -hmm. And his fear was like, I don't, well, I, it's not like I'm going to leave. And the firm, he was at a smaller consulting firm. He really liked it. He liked the people. He liked his was. He didn't want to leave. And he's like, I don't want to be out of the labor force for two years. Two years is a long time. And so, you know, it really does depend. So one is, what is a credential? What am I going to get? Number two, how am I going to pay for it? Am I going to plow through all my savings? Am I ask my parents for money or my family for money? That comes with strings attached, I've heard. And, um, and or maybe you're going to go into debt. And by the way, you go into debt, whether or not this, this degree or certificate makes a difference, you still have the debt, okay? Yeah. And I think that the the third part is really this idea, is there a cheaper way to get where I want to go? Is there a certificate program? Can I get my business to pay for something that's important? You know, there are a lot of organizations that want to actually help you gain these, um, these credentials and they'll help you, but you also have to be real. Am I just getting this? Cause I'm like, I don't know what else to do. And I'm going to like hang out for two years and go get an MBA from what's the matter you like, that's stupid. Don't do that. Definitely not from what's the matter you. That's no. not gonna. That's not gonna help you get those hyper. One of my favorite countries. Um, let's. Right, so we've talked about you know doing the inventory. We've talked about maybe dipping your toe in the water with a side hustle. Maybe you've decided to go full force. One thing that I f didn't fully realize, I didn't know, Jill, was all the basics of starting your own business. Are you forming a, a S corp mm -hmm. versus an LLC? How are you managing taxes, deductions? All of that. I mean, beyond reading your book, of course, and listening to your podcast and all the places you're at, what, where's the where's the basic? Where's the guideline? Because I think that's one of the things that makes it scary, right? Is just all the things you don't know. You're in yeah. charge of all this now. I mean, I I'm really I I totally get it. Um, what's often helpful in this process is to understand that nothing is like has to be all that complicated. Okay. And what do I mean by that? You know, if you're earning some money on the side, then you have just plain old self-employment income. It's very easy to account for that. And, 
and everything else, any other structures you have, it's a little bit of window dressing. But essentially, you can have an S corporation, you can have an LLC, and you can have a C corporation. Most people start off as sole proprietors, and the money they earn just flows through to their own tax returns. The next thing is an S corporation, which, you know, it, it's okay, but there's an issue about like you really have to figure out am I going to, um, will I have employees? Do I think I'm not going to have employees? Do I want to have a structure that pr- creates some? protection around me and separates my business from my real life. That's an LLC. And you know, what really is helpful in this is to have a great CPA or a certified financial planner in your life. Just Mm -hmm. somebody who can say like, we'll say to you, you don't need that right now. Or yeah, you know what? It's time you need that. And I think that a lot of those questions can be answered pretty quickly. We kind of overthink them, even just like getting a tax ID number. You're like, Oh my God. And you're like, Oh, it's a form. It's 25 bucks. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it, it, it turns out all this stuff, the IRS.gov actually brings us to the next subject, which is your controversially titled chapter, The IRS is Your Friend. The um, IRS is your friend, my friend. <laughs> tell me, tell me, Jill, why is the IRS our friend? There's a lot in there, by the way. I mm. tell everyone, if you, first of all, you need to buy her book, The Great Money Reset. And then there's, they, you will, you, you may find yourself taking a lot of notes in the IRS chapter because yeah, there's a lot that we don't it, know. Yeah, this is like the high nerd factor. So if you like money, you're going to love this chapter. Um, Because the IRS code is written in such a way that there are opportunities in your life to really pay lower taxes. And that's really the essence. That's like the thesis of that chapter, which is if you understand that, then as you make your reset, you can use the IRS and the tax code to your great advantage. This is often the case for people who have or have a few bucks already, and they might be transitioning to a lower income. So if I'm in the 24% tax bracket, and as I go on my reset, I'm going down to the 12% tax bracket, you say, hmm, I'm probably not going to be in 12% for the rest of my life. I ought to take advantage of that fact right now. So like one of the easy tricks, not tricks, but uh, one of the easy things to do would be to say, I have an old retirement plan at, you know, XYZ corporation, and I'm going to convert that into a Roth IRA. It's a traditional plan. I put the money away pre-tax. I put the money away when I was earning uh, a lot of money and I was in the 24% or the 35% tax bracket. Now I'm in this lower tax bracket. I can take the money. I can roll it into a traditional IRA and I can start converting it taking the money out and putting it into a Roth IRA, which you're essentially doing is saying to the IRS, Hey, tax man, here's 12%. I'm taking the money out of my current tax bracket and that's it. They don't get more. Now you can't take more out than would push you into another tax bracket, but Hey, that's kind of a cool thing. And for all these people who are like, Oh, I don't want to sell my company stock because I have so much gain in that. By the mm-hmm. way, how about, how's that feel? All you tech people. Isn't that fun? <laughs> Isn't it fun to watch that happen? It's, and in it that was a rough case, 2022. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. But you know, in that case you say, well, wait, you know what? Um, I'm making money now and I'm going to do this reset. I think I'll take some of this money and I'll create a donor advised fund. It's a beautiful way to do charitable giving over the course of your life. You can set it up at a lot of the big investment houses. I use the Fidelity Charitable Trust. It's so easy to use. You can take a high cost. Uh, you can base, take, take something where you have a lot of gains embedded. So a low cost basis asset. You can transfer it in. You get the huge deduction today while you're still making your, your money. And the money that goes in there 
is essentially useful to you to give away over the course of your life probably. And so there's a lot more in there, but like those are just a couple of things that make it so easy. So you get a huge charitable deduction and you basically create this pot of money that gradually over time you will eventually have to give it away, but not even in your lifetime, right? You may end up end up giving it to your, you know. Absolutely. And you know, what's really kind of cool about it is that if you I mean, if you, you have to be charitably inclined. So if you're not, sorry. Um, but you know, there are, there are other things that are kind of cool. Like, you know, the, the code changes all the time, but if you think about this, um, like we just got a little, um, addendum to some of the retirement rules at the end of last year. Mm -hmm. And now the, the time when you have to start taking money out of your retirement account is at age 75. Okay. So at that point, you know, there's a, people have piles and piles of money that have built up there. And what they don't realize is that, you know, if I wait till then I'm forced to take all the money out of this account, right. Between let's say 75 and 95, mm -hmm. right. You might want to start taking some of that money out sooner. You might want to start taking money out and you might say, I don't even need all this money, but I could actually take a distribution and send it straight to a charity. And then I'll just, that's, that'll be my charitable giving. It's called a qualified charitable distribution or a QCD. So there's a lot of really cool stuff that you can do in the tax code. My friends, the IRS is your friend. All right. And, and, and for all of that, you need a good accountant, potentially something beyond uh, TurboTax. Yeah. You know what? 90% of Americans file the standard deduction. They yeah. do not need CPAs. Right. Okay. Just a hap it's tax season. So I'm like, let's do a quick nod to tax season. And you know, yeah, I get it. You think like if you got someone who will do it great, you still have to gather all the documents. It's not that hard to do walk through the process. Mm -hmm. If you want to hire somebody, it's great. Especially if you're a small business owner, especially if you have a complicated life and you know, it can be daunting for people. So I'm okay. I love my accountant. I may be the only person who says that. So we are in, uh, you love the IRS, you love your accountant, you're a rare individual. Joel. I know. Um, we're, so we're in tax season right now. There were some changes. I, you know, I, I think they held off on the whole Venmo um, yeah. thing. But what do we need to know uh, over the course of the next few months about filing? There have been some delays in the IRS. There's a whole controversy about adding agents, adding funding, et cetera. What is the state of play? What, 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 what do American taxpayers need to know this season? April 18th. That's your tax filing deadline. Thank you, Emancipation Day in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, so the big thing, here's the big, the big breaking news is your 2022 filing is really just going to be almost the exact same as your 2019 filing. How about that? Okay. Um, forget about the pandemic era because a lot of things changed during that era. All of those benefits, they're kind of gone. Okay. So for some people, there may be some leftovers, but there's like really, extra child tax credits, all the extra stuff. Okay. All that extra stuff gone. So what does that mean? It means that pull out your 2019 return. It'll be your guide. It'll be a very good guide to help you. Um, the other thing you need to know is that, as you said, that, you know, when we look at, um, the, the claiming of side hustle income on a pay, digital payment platform, like a Venmo or, um, uh, PayPal or Zelle, there was a, a rule that was going to go into effect that said, if you had, if you made more than 600 bucks on any of these digital payment platforms, you'd have to report a 1099 to the IRS, which by the way, is not that hard. So everyone just take a deep breath and calm okay. down. Yeah. Okay. So they delayed it because it, people got freaked out because people are get just because you say the word 1099 and all of a sudden everybody's eyes glaze over. Here's the, if you have 
income that's more than $20,000 from any of those platforms altogether, and you do more than 200 transactions, you do have to file a 1099. So that's a lot of like ride sharing people actually. Mm -hmm. So if they got, if you got paid that way, um, otherwise for everyone else, it's going to happen. So prepare, it's not that bad. Filing a form is not hard. It really is not. The other thing to remember about, um, where we are with the IRS is that, um, it, they had an insane number of calls last year, like 173 million calls. One of eight was answered. So do not call the IRS. Um, this nonsense about funding the IRS is so stupid. It just makes me want to blow my brains out. It's right up there with the debt ceiling. Um, cause it's an unforced error. Here's why we complain. Oh, only one of eight calls got answered. And yet we don't want to fund the IRS. And also it's not just, these are not just agents. We need like tech people. We need people to like make sure that we have great security. There's, there's a lot of stuff we need from the IRS and we, we should want them funded and we should want more agents because you know what? There's a lot of people playing fast and loose with their taxes. They tend to usually make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Most times, most times, I won't say all the time, but I would bet if I, if I would do a, like a real, like drill down into who gets audited, it's not a couple making $82,000 a year in wage income. So everyone calm down. It's okay but I think they should be hired and they are going to be hired. So they're already staffing up, but they are, they're almost dug out of the pandemic era, but not quite. So as we talk about, we're talking about tax season, talking about the state of the economy, as we speak, as we record this, Jill, GDP numbers came out uh, for last year that shows that the recession, that was sort of a recession, that wasn't quite a recession. We grew, the economy grew last year, but there have been a whole bunch of warnings, um, you know, from, from small business to major banks warning about 2023 in a recession. Uh, with all that sort of confusing landscape, make sense of that. And also, as, as a regular person, what should I be doing to prepare for this recession that might mm. come in 2023, for this economy that is uncertain? So I'm going to give the, let me start with the second part first. Um, what you should do to prepare if you're worried about uncertainty is to have more cash on hand. I always have gone on the air, I think 5,000 million times. And, uh, my anchors always roll their eyes when I say, keep six to 12 months of your living expenses in a safe place. Now, luckily safe place you're getting paid more money on. So short-term T-bills or CDs or money markets or high yield savings, like you're getting paid a decent amount of money. Now six to 12 months in the bank will do a lot to soothe your nerves. And if you are in a very volatile profession where you're very nervous about your income, like I'm thinking, I used to say this to realtors during the pandemic. I hope you're putting a lot of money away because it ain't going to keep going forever. Mm -hmm. So if you want ballast against a recession, cash on hand is very good. So six to 12 Um, months. So that is my housing expenses. That is everything. Remember when we went through all of your, like when we were doing your reset, I said, account for all your spending. Guess what? Dirty little secret. Everyone should do it. You should know what your monthly nut is. You really should. And you should know the big number, which is like the everything fun number. And you should know the bare bones number. You kind of know the bare bones number. We just lived it in the pandemic. That's your bare bones number, right? If I had to do without this, I would could. So six to 12 months in the bank, if a little bit be on the 12 month side, if you're in, if you're self-employed, if you are in a volatile industry, if you're in an interest rate sensitive industry, like in the housing market, you know, you keep more. Okay. That's what you need to do. Otherwise don't, don't mess around and start guessing where you think markets are going to go. As far as the economy, um, you know, when an economy expands by, so I cannot emphasize enough that the pandemic was such a crazy economic force. I mean, it was a horrible, terrible, 
pandemic that inflicted so much damage, more than a million people died. But from the economic standpoint, it blew out the global economy. It yeah. just blew it out. And so the recovery from that is, you know, kind of like it was hard to predict. It was really not clear which direction things were going. So we, we kind of snapped back. Things were going really well in 2021. We expanded by um, uh, 5.7%. And so last year we slowed down. We have inflation, probably didn't need as much of that very last stimulus plan. But you know, that inflation is, it was actually temporary, but they used the wrong time horizon. They should have said, we think this is a two-year problem. If someone could have said that, everyone could have been like, oh, okay, two years, I get it. But it, because they made it sound like it was two months, we all got crazy. Yeah, they kept right? saying it was temporary. It's temporary. Temporary, it's temporary, right? If you just said like, hey, you know what? This has been crazy. So there is still goods inflation um, and no... You, you know, your eggs don't cost more because of that. It's because of avi aviary avian flu. Right. But you know what? Um, so now, last year, the economy expanded by 1%. First half of the year was a contraction. Second half, there was an expansion. And altogether is a little bit like mm, 1%. Now, before the pandemic, the U.S. economy was growing by about, let's call it for the, the prior 10 years, okay? About 2.5% a year, just about, Okay. Mm -hmm. And now we'll probably get back towards that, but we are slowing down. It is incumbent on the Fed to raise interest rates. They are probably going to raise by another quarter when they meet the, at the end of January, beginning of February. That's going to happen. It's absolutely going to happen. And we are going to be at this higher rate of interest for short-term and longer-term rates for a while. And that's going to put the real sand in the gears of the economy. I don't know whether we're going to fully go into a recession. And just because 200,000 tech workers are laid off doesn't mean that the labor force is going to fall apart. Yeah. But what it does mean is that we all got ahead of ourselves. So that means the tech sector got ahead of itself. It spent a lot of money, hired a lot of people, thought everything in the pandemic is going to extrapolate forward. Not happening. Same with the housing market. Same with our spending. You know, the most interesting thing in the GDP report was the, the personal savings rate, which is, you know, now like kind of a two and a half percent rate, which just tells you that people who saved up a lot of money during the pandemic and there was like $2 trillion of excess savings, it's starting to go. Yeah. And the lower and middle income people are spending that, that savings and they're getting to, it's kind of like when, you know, they say like, we're cutting to the, we're cutting some muscle and then we know we're cutting to the bone. Well, people are going to are feeling that. And Luckily, inflation is slowing down. And it comes at a time where with, with high interest rates, your credit card interest rates will be super high. Yeah, um, that sucks. And and so with that in mind, you know, you talked about kind of this prolonged period of interest rates, at least not the era we had in the last decade where we had these, mm. you know, record low interest rates. How, how do I uh, prepare my personal finances, my family's finances for, you know, the foreseeable future of, uh, you know, a, a high interest rate environment? You know, I think it's really smart to take advantage of high interest rates when you have them. And so if you say like, I feel kind of nervous and, you know, I don't really want to be a huge investor. I get that, but you kind of have to force yourself. So your longer term money, keep putting money into your retirement account. Um, don't be, don't be so cavalier as to say, oh, I don't get paid anything from my bank. Cause I can go right now to bankrate.com, depositaccounts.com and go find you a, you know, a two or three year CD that's yielding probably 4%. And so be smart about that. Be smart about the risks you take. I mean, not for nothing, as they used to say in New England, but when you are thinking about your great money reset, it's pretty, pretty important for you to contemplate like the environment into which you're resetting. 
So are you resetting right now and saying like, I'm going to roll the dice and let's see how it goes. Like it's one thing to make that bet in a very strong economy when the wind's at your back. And it's another thing to say, well, you know what? The thing that I want to do may take longer to get going. So that may, that will argue to have more cash on hand. But in, in essence, for most people in a recession, you do what you're fighting is your emotional urge, right? So that's why the, that is why the pandemic so effed us up because emotionally we were deprived, right? We are like, I can't see, I'm scared. I can't see anyone and I can't do anything about it. I'm so out of control. Mm-hmm. And so you come out of that and you spend so much money and you make yourself, you put yourself in this situation where like, I am entitled because I suffered for so long. I know we are all human beings. We all did that. And it may be that you say, you know what, to really secure my family, I'm not going to take that extra trip next year, even if I really want to, or even if I booked it and I don't really have to book it for another two years, well, maybe I should delay it. And so there, all of this is to say that you just be reasonable. That's what it, I'm asking you to kind of tamp down your emotions a little bit and understand that things are slowing down, that everyone's job is at risk. As, um, as we talk about it, high interest rates, you know, one suggestion that was made to me last year was to buy some I bonds. Um, explain what they are and is there anything similar to them that while we still kind of live in this high interest rate, there's a rare opportunity after 10 years of no interest rates. So Uh, my very first inflation piece on CBS mornings, which I think was, it might've been the beginning of 21. I think it was. And I mentioned I bonds and I had never been inundated with so many questions from my colleagues and from viewers who were like, what, what is that? What's that? So People might be familiar with the old E or double E savings bonds issued by the federal government. I think I got a, a few of those from my bar mitzvah. Yeah, you did. You yeah. totally did. Yeah. Um, Inflation-linked bonds are just a different permutation of that, which is a savings bond that has um, that that's interest rate is linked to the CPI, to the inflation rate. And so you can buy I bonds. You can buy $10,000 a year every calendar year. You can do it at treasurydirect.gov. It's a great place to park money. It's better if you don't need that money for five years. It's like where you maximize it. It really is. Five years will give you the max amount. Yeah. Of the, of the, okay. But you know, you don't have to. Um, but I would also tell you, like, honestly, like if you're just looking at, you know, I, so, you know, I just had a friend who had an inheritance and we're, she's like, well, what should I do with this money? I'm like, okay, no big decisions right now. Let's buy some T bills. Like let's buy some government guaranteed bonds that have basically very little risk unless we blow through the debt ceiling, different story. Um, but even then, what's like that you June? Ho- well, we blew through the debt ceiling, but they're, yeah, they're using June. the, uh, yeah, the yes. extraordinary measures. Um, but you know what, if you, if you don't need your money, you know, you can build bond ladders and keep, you know what? I don't think the stock market's dead. Everybody seems to be uh, approaching the world as if like financial markets are dead. You can't buy bonds. You buy But I have not seen a repeal of this idea that, you know, when everybody is on the same side of a trade, everybody is so bearish and so negative that then we don't find uh, 10, 20, 30 years later, we're fine. And so I would say, try to stick to your guns. And when everybody is freaking out, you're just like, you know what, just, just keep putting the money away and you can have a little extra cash, but don't shy away from also taking risk. And by the way, some of the most amazing entrepreneurial stories were built in recessions. 
Any other investment vehicles beyond I-bonds people should Google or? Um, I mean, I-bonds are great. And I think just buying, you know, honestly, like short-term money is great. And I think stick to index funds and don't let anyone sell you some crap you don't need. Like if you have index funds, if you, you know, I. What what I do with all my crypto, Jill? Uh, well, you know, it's it's coming back. (laughs) It is. You're you're almost in the money. You bought it at 60. You're lucky it's at 23. Um, you know what? And I write about this in the book, you know, Moshe, I used to be like a total baby. I'd be like, this stuff is crazy. What are people doing? And you know, yeah, you've become more open-minded in recent years. I am. I see how I'm expansive. Um, I think that if you want to take a flyer on something, just keep it to 5% of your total investments. That's it. And that goes with sort of everything. And for folks who work at these big companies who are doling out, they're doling out stock to you, it's really best practice to sell it all the time. So when you see that a CEO is selling stock, don't think like, oh, he's got insider information or she must know something. It's usually part of just being smart about not having too much risk on the table. So you can do that too. Okay, I'd like to introduce all of you to Apostrophe, another new Mo News sponsor. Apostrophe is an online platform that connects you with expert dermatology teams to get customized acne treatment for your unique skin. It's very convenient. Apostrophe essentially offers virtual derm consultations, including for acne, dark spots. Sometimes getting a dermatology appointment can take a while. I know I have found that. So this is simple to use and can be done from home. You answer several questions, snap a few selfies, and a board-certified dermatologist will create your initial customized treatment plan. And so they are offering a special deal for the Monus audience. Get your first visit for only $5 over at apostrophe.com slash monews when you use the code monews you will get a discount also on medication again to get started just go to apostrophe.com a-p-o-s-t-r-o-p-h-e apostrophe.com slash monews and click to get started and use our code monews at sign up you'll get the first visit for only five dollars i'm talking to jill schlesinger of the great money reset uh jill i i, I didn't want to say bye to you before we talk housing market Okay. Um, because we're talking about, you're talking about the pandemic, you're talking about, um, you know, just this sort of the tsunami it's created in the economy and the trickle and all the domino effect. And I'm using a lot of metaphors here, but you get the point. So the housing market uh, has gone through a, a whole fluctuation. We, where are we right now? Does it depend geographically on your region? Mm-hmm. Um, what- it might. I mean, look, the, the, so last year was a bad year for housing. You can't have mortgage rates go from, you know, 3% for a 30-year fix to 6 or 7% and not see a big change. Mm-hmm. The housing market contracted. Prices are starting to come down. Right now, 30-year mortgages, are, I think, are like 6.1%. Um, it, and, you know, the reality is that prices will come down in the places where they went up the most. And I think housing prices are likely to drop drop this year, next year, a little bit. You know, housing markets move very slowly, so it's also difficult. But that being said, doesn't mean you can't buy a house, doesn't mean you shouldn't buy a house. What it means is that if you are in the market to buy, you should be careful about understanding the cost of getting a fixed rate mortgage. You should compare that with an adjustable rate. If you're saying like, uh, so... If, if you and I are married motion, we're like, we want to buy a house in the burbs and we, we should look at a 30 year fixed rate, but you know what else we should look at? We should look at an adjustable rate and say, maybe we'll take a swing at this. Maybe in the next seven or 10 years, we'll have a chance to refinance. But at the end of the day, a housing purchase that you make for your, like the place you're going to live is a long-term bet. And my, you know, now I'm going to sound like super duper old farty aunt Jill, which is the very first house I bought. 
It was with a seven and a quarter percent, 30 year fixed rate mortgage. And I remember my uh, father said, oh my God, what a great rate. <laughs> so, you know, so, you know, and you have chances. Back, back then a 7% rate was, you. oh, I will definitely was, take the fixed because right? like, this is the yeah. best we're going to see. Yeah, exactly. And you're on your way down. You know, we, we didn't know that. So we didn't know we were going to zero interest rates forever. Mm-hmm. So this is all good. I think, I think that having interest rates at zero creates a lot of weird incentives and, you know, it's not good for any market, housing market, a, a financial market, the private equity market. When you have money that's essentially free, you have people taking a ton of crazy ass risk. And that is not good. That's a destabilizing force. So having rates stay a little bit higher for a little bit longer is good. Let things flush out. It's fine. And it will be fine. You, you've often uh, said, you know, it's, it's funny as like first generation, as my dad's an immigrant, because, you know, to them, it's like, you got to own, you got to own, you got to buy, why haven't you bought? And so he always um, had words to say to me for as someone who rented an apartment for the better part of nearly two decades now in DC and New York, um, you know, still looking at, at purchasing a home. But you sometimes make the argument that renting is better than buying, depending on your there, circumstance. Oh my God. There's so many, there's so many instances where it is. And that's why you really have to weigh that. And you, the problem is, again, we have this like strange notion, your first generation, um, you know, I am, I get so many inquiries from people who are first generation. And by the way, that is such a fascinating thing that it's like a first generation almost from anywhere. Mm-hmm. So I've had Chinese immigrants, I've had Mexican immigrants, I've had Middle Eastern immigrants, and they all sort of, the, the family comes here because their parents came and they said the path to wealth was through a house. Right. You own and everything. You don't want to lease anything. You don't want to rent anything. Anything. Now, the difference is that, you know, you're, you are probably in a slightly different place, but the real difference is that housing prices have gone up a lot. And so what you really need to do is be clear and you compare apples to apples. Can I buy something that I'd be happy in right now? What is the cost of carrying that? If all of a sudden your rent is going up like, you know, to a ridiculous degree and you say to me, well, Jill, I could either, you know, go buy a house in the burbs and my cost of my all in cost, even with that 6% crapo 30 year fixed rate mortgage is $6,000 a month. And you say, but my rent where I want to rent is $8,000 a month. Dumb, right? But you know, let's flip it around. The flip around is, you know what? If there are markets where it's still compelling to buy and there's markets where it's still compelling to rent. And the the difference in a big city like New York or San Francisco or Boston is that there's a lot of housing stock. There's rental stock in a lot of other places. It's harder to rent actually. And so I think that running the numbers makes sense. And like trying to just shed, I, I love your parents and I want you to honor them, but you also have to understand they come into this conversation in such a different place. Mm -hmm. And we appreciate that. And I love it. And, you know, we are a nation of immigrants and I understand that, but it is a different market right now. And you owe it to yourself also to just acknowledge, like, I don't want to own anything. Like I've talked to a lot of people who say, Owning kind of freaks me out. I like to have a bit of a, um, like a nomadic life. I want to be able to pull up and go where I want, where I want to go, when I want to go. So there's, go find a house. I was talking to Jill just before we, be, we hit record here about, uh, the book is jam packed with advice on, on housing, on career, uh, on finances, on taxes. So I definitely urge all of you, uh, to get it. Jill, if there's one thing you want people to take away from the book, 
What is it? You can do this. It's going to take some work. And I would like to be able to say to you, as you're hearing this and you're listening to this, it is worth the exercise of going through what would a great money reset feel like, look like for me, for my family. And I think even if you don't actually come to a conclusion where you do reset, I think you will be happier where you are. So go get it. Go get them, gang. I'm looking, looking forward to hearing from you because I really want to see what you do. How, how can they reach out to you? Where can they find you? Jillonmoney.com. That's the website. and Everything is there. My, my contact is there and uh, all the content that I have is there. Jill, thanks for joining me. We, we have to catch up more often. I know. Um, and, and good luck with the book. Thanks so much, Moshe. I'm looking for the Moshe bump. Our thanks again to Jill Schlesinger for her insight. Uh, we are looking to help her with the Mo News bump here. So go out and buy her new book, The Great Money Reset, wherever you get your books. You can also listen to her podcast, The Jill on Money Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening to the Mo News Podcast. Make sure to follow or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to us. Also leave us a review. It helps grow the show. You can also follow us over on Instagram on the Mo News Instagram account at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. S-H-E-H. We plan to continue to bring you regular conversations with perspective from experts, leaders, journalists involved in some of the biggest news stories in addition to our daily news podcast. And if you've made it this far on the podcast, I have a, a special piece of information to drop on all of you. We will be launching a Mo News Premium Community Membership next month along with the Mo News website where you will be able to get much more conversations like this uh, deep dives, a whole bunch of stuff. So a lot of exciting stuff coming with the Mo News Premium Membership. More to come on that over on Instagram and this podcast. I will see everyone back here tomorrow for another Mo News podcast.